We're richly blessed to be sure to assemble on this Lord's Day morning. The appreciation of the blessings of this past week, whatever they may have been, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. To borrow the wording of James 1, verse number 17. Today, as we come to this part of our service, for the next few moments, Brother Gary prayed just a moment ago, leading us in prayer that we might reflect upon the wording of Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, and implement those matters in our heart and in our life. I do trust and hope that as we reflect upon a lesson I've entitled Authority in the Bible, that we will be drawn closer than ever to an understanding of really the significance of what this means and the practical implementation of it. To do that, I'd like to begin this introductory slide like this. Christianity is such a rich and impressive matter, and you and I know that it's now about 2,000 years old. Our Savior died, and since that time, of course, the days of Acts chapter 2, we've enjoyed the existence of the church. And so individuals have assembled on the first day of lots of weeks over the last 2,000 years striving to worship God in truth and in spirit, doing so with a heartfelt understanding of serving Him in a way that He has not only stated but would find pleasing. But that leads me to a question near the bottom of that slide and one that we will develop even more thoroughly on the next one. And that question, as you can see, will point us in this direction. How do you and I know what is appropriate in service to God? Would you please allow that to rest in your heart just a moment? How do you know? For after all, there are lots of things that might at least be discussed. And things that on the surface sound not only good, but actually quite fantastic. For that reason on that slide, I've chosen to list a few of them. You know, human beings are very creative. We are rather ingenious in many ways. And quite frankly, when a certain matter arises, we can come up with ways to approach it. And so what if someone had ideas perhaps like this? I will describe a scenario. And I'd like for you to at least picture yourself in a position to have to make a decision about it. Suppose there's a congregation of the Lord's people meeting somewhere. And the leadership, the elders of that congregation have a, what seems to be a grand idea. You know, we love our children, and we want them to know how special they are. And we want them to appreciate how much we want them to grow up to be faithful Christians. And we want to lift up the hands of their parents so that they will appreciate how much we respect what they're doing. So i tell you what I think we ought to do as elders. Let's declare a particular Sunday with a worship service that is centered on carrying out this kind of respect. And so, we'll ask the song leader to lead songs that lift high the banner of children. And we'll encourage our preacher to preach that day on the family and on children. And as a part of that service, we will have a time of dedication of these young people to God. We'll ask them to come forward. We will make a pronouncement of expression upon them. And we'll include that as a part of our worship. Now, if you had to make the decision, is that in accordance to the Word of God? Would that be an acceptable worship service? 
Good question, isn't it? How would you know? Is it left up to our devices to figure out whether or not certain things can be incorporated as a part of worship or not? How about another scenario? The next one on the slide. This earth on which we live is a special place. Astronomers have pointed their telescopes in the heavens and there is no place, no planet, no celestial body anywhere like this one. Air, water, right temperature. It's wonderful. Suppose some elders somewhere had an idea. You know what? Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Why don't we have a particular service? You know, Earth Day every year happens near the end of April. Why don't we take that Sunday just after that day, and we'll have a special dedicatory service to the preservation of planet Earth. We'll have our preacher preach a message that day about the importance of Earth. We'll have the song leader lead songs that touch it. And as a part of that service, we will have a special ceremony honoring the impressiveness of God's creation of Earth. And we'll even have a particular issue that carries forward in that service where each person takes an oath to help preserve it. Sound like a good idea? How would you know whether God would be pleased with that or not? I hope I've already said enough to know human beings can think of a lot of different things. We can think of particular approaches to matters how about a third one on the slide? This one will sound more familiar. You know, it sounds wonderful to think that once a person is saved, wouldn't it be delightful to hope that they're always saved? So in fact, why don't we teach that? We will insist that individuals appreciate, you see, that once they've committed their life to Christ and once they've been dedicated to Him, they'll always remain in God's family. Sound like a good doctrine? Is that something we could teach and feel good about it? But now you see the idea, how do you know? The last two are these. These two will sound awfully familiar. You and I know now that for nigh on several hundred years, lots of questions have been raised about the inclusion of mechanical instruments of music and worship. Let's face it, there are those who can make a great argument. There are some congregations that will say, our singing is awful. If we had somebody playing a piano that we could sing along to, they could help keep us in time. They could help get the pitch right. They could help make sure that our singing is more powerful in terms of being appropriate. Let's face it, doesn't it sound like a good idea? What's wrong with it? Could we include that and feel good about it? What about worship services held elsewhere? What if someone were to ask the question, there are congregations meeting. May I stay at home and worship? May I do that? May I again say, how do you know? How do you know the answer to any of these questions? You hold the answer in your, in your lap. The only way that we know the answer to any of these questions and a million others that could be asked just like them 
is the verse that we just read this morning, verse 17 of Colossians 3. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So whether it be the pondering of a child dedication service as a part of worship, whether it be the pondering of teaching once saved, always saved, the particular parallels could go on and on. But you and I have the answer to every such question that might be asked. We have to appreciate the fact of what this next slide is going to develop. And as we do that, we'll look at a number of specific examples. Every answer to any of these questions will have to be based upon the appreciation of authority. Authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority, all power in heaven and in earth has been given to me. All of it. And you may remember that to those apostles, it had been told to them in John 16, 13, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall guide you into all truth. Not part of it, not some of it, not a portion of it, but they would be bequeathed all truth. And with that in mind, you may then notice on this slide, that means that with regard to any practice in worship or other avenues of doctrine, we must have heavenly authority for it. It doesn't matter otherwise how good it may sound, how appropriate it may appear, how emotional it could be, how motivating it might well appear. None of that has to be any factor related to ultimately the decision for it or against it. Does it have heavenly authority? Does it have heavenly approval? If it does, then we must support it in the sense of finding the best way to implement it. But if it does not have heavenly authority, it is off the docket for consideration immediately. That's the viewpoint we must adopt because the verse just said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, about the middle of that slide, we've now appreciated this. When it comes to all those examples we raised earlier, I would suggest that specifically the child dedication one, doesn't that sound so wholesome to encourage our young people to be faithful, to encourage their parents to be good parents? That just sounds so good. Who could possibly oppose a child? But our question would have to be, does the Bible authorize that? Could we have a special ceremony as a part of worship in which we dedicate it in that regard? As you and I close that slide, it thus becomes pertinent that you and I use the Word of God and ask, does this particular activity have heavenly authority? And 2 Timothy 2.15 will tell us, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And thus, it is demanded that we rightly divide the Bible. At this point, I think, though, you could say the general answer to our question has at least been presented, but I would wish that we be more specific than that. Let's look at three specific avenues in which this heavenly authority could be presented to us. And the first one is this one. 
when you and I give consideration to the manner in which God tells us in His Word what He wants us to know and to do. That is to say, the matter of authority He has presented. One of the ways in which He can present that authority is what I've entitled direct command. In other words, there's a verse that says, Thou shalt, or perhaps a verse that says, Thou shalt not. That makes it fairly abundantly plain, doesn't it? This is what He demands that I do. These are some things He demands I not do. I think we're rather accustomed to the concept of direct command. I suppose from our parents we're pretty familiar with it, aren't we? Maybe our dad said, Son, by the time I get home, you have the yard weed-eated. Now that's pretty plain. I knew exactly what he meant. Or maybe mom said, I expect that you'll have your room vacuumed and dusted within the next hour. It's hard to misunderstand that. Well, you'll notice some examples in the Bible. The Bible also in such a way presents God's truth in various ways in that fashion. Think about Noah. God said, build an ark. Genesis 6.14. Three stories. He gave him the dimensions of how long, high, and wide it was supposed to be. That again was a direct commandment. Construct an ark. You might take note that it didn't matter that it was going to take him decades to do it. It nonetheless was to be completed. It was a very difficult and challenging task, but God's command was plain enough. Or look at another example in Exodus 25.10. Moses, the children of Israel, build you an ark of the covenant. Two and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits both high and long. Easy enough to understand. Direct commandment. But it, you see, that isn't only in the Old Testament. You may notice the New Testament. There are some commands there. Consider these two. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4 verse 10. Ephesians 5 19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. The phraseology of that is again a commandment. When we gather, I must sing. I can't sit there and listen and keep God's command. I may not be able to sing very well, but that makes no difference. God commands that all of us congregationally participate in a cappella singing. And we, of course, thrill at the thought of doing it. You'll notice that there are some others sometimes are very hard. Jesus said, Thou shalt love thine enemy. Matthew 5, 44. That's challenging. It doesn't change the fact He commanded it. By now, I think we can see the idea of commandment is relatively easy to appreciate. And at least in terms of worship, we've already noted the singing. Appreciate the giving, the contribution. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 points that out as a direct commandment. We are commanded to give as we have been prospered. Are you and I going to do that today? We must if we're going to please God. Let's close that slide by saying this. Sometimes those direct commandments are stated in the negative, as if to say, Thou shalt not. And perhaps one that comes to mind is 1 Timothy 2.12, I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. 
That's why we don't have a female preacher, for example. A lot of ladies could perhaps speak eloquently and could bring a message that would be good, but that doesn't change the fact of what God said. What about a second possibility? Other than direct commandment, look at this one. There are times in the Word of God when we appreciate that. There is a particular example, an approved example of first century brethren participating in an activity. And even though there is not a direct commandment to that end, the fact that God approved what they did suggests that whatever they were doing on that occasion is also something that God authorizes. Let's look at a few examples of that one. I again would wish us to quickly observe, not everything that occurred in the Bible was good. Sometimes people made mistakes, and sometimes they in fact chose poorly. So we've got to rightly divide the word. Demas, you see, loved this present world, and he left Paul. So is that an example I should follow? Of course not. What about 3 John 9 when we find Diotrephes loving to have the preeminence? Should you and I follow his example? Not in that regard, because notice those things were condemned. What we're saying is, when we find first century people doing things that God approved, that lends His authority for you and I doing that thing today. Let's use a few examples to help solidify that thinking in our heart. Here's a very good question. We assemble here at the Pippin Church of Christ, and we in fact look forward to the opportunities of serving God in whatever way we might be able to do it here. But what if we were to consider this question? Suppose a person, a gentleman, comes to us and says, My passion and my heart is to serve the people of God in the country of Czechoslovakia. Would you support me to go there and preach? to establish a congregation, hopefully, in that area? That's a great question. Do we have authority in the Word of God to support a missionary preacher? That may sound so simple, but if we're serving beneath the mantra, whatever you do in word or deed, that means that kind of thing must be included. Do we have Bible authority for sending money to a man in a far distant place, to preach the gospel? We absolutely do. Look at Acts 13, verses 1 and following. Here we had a first century church, the church at Antioch. They sent a preacher dozens of miles away to preach in various locations. In fact, Paul would travel hundreds of miles in his various missionary journeys, and the church at Antioch was his supporting congregation. So do you and I have Bible authority for it? We do, but it's not a direct commandment. It's a Bible example. The church at Antioch did it. The church in Philippi did it. The church at Thessalonica did it. And therefore, the Pippin Church of Christ has the authority of God to do that same thing today. You can also see in Philippians 4.15, we have the highest commendation heaped upon the church at Philippi. They supported Paul as he proclaimed the gospel in distant places when very few other congregations did it. Paul thanked them, he complimented them, and he wanted them to know how much work had been able to be accomplished for the cause of Christ due to their efforts.
At this point, what about another example? This one I think is very basic and fundamental. When a person obeys the gospel, in that they hear and they believe, they repent, they confess, and they're baptized. What happens after that if some issue arises in life and they stray from the faith? Do they need to be baptized again? How would you know? What do you and I do for an erring child of God? Do we demand that they repent and confess and be baptized all over again? Apart from the Bible, we would not know that answer. But thankfully, due to the Bible's presentation, we do know the answer. The answer is no, they don't have to be rebaptized. Look at Acts chapter 8. There we have an example of a man. His name was Simon. He had obeyed the gospel, verse 12. He had been baptized into Christ. He had, in fact, had his sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But then, after that... He tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter told him, you've sinned. You have erred. So what did that man have to do? Did Peter rebaptize him? No. In fact, prayer was offered on his behalf, and that's why as a part of our invitations, we often will say for an erring child of God, you do have to repent because Peter told him to. But you need to, in fact, ask for prayers of brethren. And so we're delighted to pray for an erring child of God. May I again impress upon each of us, that's how we know. Left to ourselves, we might think you've got to be baptized again, but the Word of God says no. At this point, how does the Bible authorize? One, by direct commandment. Two, by inspired approved example. Let's close that slide like this. How often are you and I supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper? Once a month? Once a quarter? Once every six months? How about once a year? You know, there are groups of people who assemble, and they only take the Lord's Supper about once every three months. Some others only once every six months. Would we lift up our elders' hands if they made that choice? We would not. What Bible example do we have? In Acts 20, verse 7, they met on the first day of the week. May I ask, of all days of a week, how many first days does it have? Every week has a first day. Every part of a week has a first day. The point is... In 1 Corinthians 16, the word every even appears. Every first day of the week. Therefore, we thrillingly desire to follow that example that we find in the pages of the New Testament. And we longingly and with excitement partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. As you and I close that slide, you'll notice that we have the example of brethren in the first century who met on the first day of every week. And they did so in corporate assemblies, just like what we're doing today. They came together, they sang, they prayed, they partook the Lord's Supper in one location, 1 Corinthians 14, 23. And as they did that, of course, we appreciate in it that that's where instruction and teaching was in fact to be found. 
And so we have the inspired example of first century brethren with God's approval meeting in that kind of way. One last thing that might be mentioned. In addition to example and direct commandment, there's one other avenue that we find within the pages of the Word of God. As far as the presentation of Bible authority, and it might well be called a necessary inference. That's a long-sounding word, I admit, but the idea is simple enough. And to try to help all of us appreciate the idea behind it, I gave you an example. It's the one at the top of that slide. By necessary inference, I mean this. There are occasions in which the truth of the Bible is presented and we can know that it's right even if there's no inspired example of it and even if there's no direct commandment for it, but it must be inferred from the Word of God. Here's an example. Suppose you've got three people, Arnold, Barbara, and Chris. And suppose the following two statements are exactly known. Arnold is taller than Barbara, and Barbara is taller than Chris. Question. What do you know about the height of Arnold compared to Chris? I never said anything about one of them being taller than the other one. Not one word about Arnold compared to Chris. But based on what was said, is it certain that you can know that Arnold is taller than Chris? Absolutely. Because it's inferred from the truthful statements that are made, and it is a correct and inescapable deduction based on the things that have been stated. There are times in the Bible when that kind of presentation also takes place. I thought we would ask and note a couple of examples. There are congregations not very far from here, most of them very small, and they don't have any elders. Now, you and I know that a congregation has business it has to conduct. There are things that must be done, like supporting missionaries, like taking care of those in destitute ways. How is that congregation to carry those things out? Could they have a business meeting in an effort to make such decisions? The phrase business meeting does not occur anywhere in the Bible, not one time. But would that be a necessary inference for a way that that congregation could carry out its business? It's not to say that's the only way, but would that be one way that would be reasonable? Sure it would. Acts 14, verses 22 and 23. What about another example? You and I have used a songbook this morning. The phrase hymn book doesn't occur anywhere in this Bible. Now, there is reference to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So is it okay to use a songbook as a part of a worship service? Would that be consistent with the things of God? Sure it would. God commands us to sing, and He commands that the singing be decent in order. So there must be a way to carry out that singing so that all are together. Would this be one way to do it? Sure it would. I might suggest one more example, and then we'll close that slide and turn to another. As you think about the characteristic of necessary inference and its application to the wonders of service, 
It is our desire always to do only that which God has commanded. Let's go back now to some of those first ones we mentioned. As good as it may have sounded, and as encouraging as it may seem, in light of what we've just learned, there is no Bible example of a child dedicatory service as a part of worship. There's no direct commandment for that. And there's no necessary inference for it either. So we would say that a service that included that, although it might sound so good, we would not, could not give it an endorsement because God doesn't. Isn't that interesting? Because you see, it's always been our goal to do whatever we do in word or deed, only using the authority of the Word of God. Look at the second one. That doctrine of once saved, always saved, as good as that may sound to some, there's a problem with it. The Bible doesn't teach it. It isn't consistent with the Word of God, and therefore we could not teach that, or in fact endorse it in the mind of others. What about interpreting the Word of God? I hope that we've at least been reminded so far in our lesson today about authority in the Bible. Direct command, necessary inference, approved example. And as we interpret the Word of God with the goal of determining whether or not these practices are acceptable, we're going to always go back to God's Word and use it to help us and ask whether there's authority for it. The conclusion slide to this particular lesson looks like this. I would suggest, and I think it would be difficult to, to make a different case, that among the matters that could be raised, surely one of the most basic ones would be this. How do I know what I can and cannot do in acceptable service to God? We've learned today it is not left to our own devices to figure this out. We must have Bible authority for that which we do, and that requires that we either have a direct commandment for it we have a necessary inference relative to it, or we have an approved example of it. And if we have that, we can rest assured with the utmost of confidence that that activity is approved by God and that He will in fact shower blessing upon those relative to it. But no matter how good the idea may be, no matter how pertinent it may sound, if it does not have authority in one of those three ways, then it must be objected. It must be opposed. I would offer one final thought. For 2,000 years or so now, the Christian religion has been the one prompted, of course, by the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as congregations occur on the continents of this earth, in cultures that vary so differently in people whose ethnic backgrounds are so varied, there is a single standard that every person and every congregation everywhere must turn to and ask, does it have Bible authority? And so we aren't left to our devices. I think we can each imagine if all of us were left to do what we think, cultures very different from us would soon have a worship service we wouldn't even recognize. But today... If you and I were to go to Africa, if we were to go to Southeast Asia, if we were to go to Australia, 
If we were to go to Antarctica and find brethren worship, we would recognize exactly what's happening. We might not understand the language, I confess, but it'd be obvious what they're doing because you and I know they're following exactly the same authorized pattern that you and I do. And that's the way the Lord wanted it. That's what the Lord commanded to be done. Today, as we close this lesson, we thus ask ourselves the question, how do I know what I may and may not do in service to God? It all goes back to authority. And we demand that it have direct command, approved example, or necessary inference concerning it. Speaking of the plan of salvation, I mentioned that earlier in the lesson today, but it's time to revisit it. How do I know what I need to do to have my sins washed away? Could I pay a certain amount of money and would that be sufficient? Could I come up before a group and make a witnessing confession? Would that be enough? By now you see the point. There's a lot of things that might be suggested, but we know the answer. And the reason we know it is because we have examples to this end. We have commandments to this end. Jesus commanded that you've got to believe in me with all your heart. He said that in John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins. That is to say, you appreciate a state of mind in which you realize that that was wrong and you intend to do it no more. That's repentance. You make a verbal, audible confession of the greatness of Jesus as the Messiah. And then you're submerged, immersed in water for the remission of sins. And when you come out of that water, the sins are gone. They've been forgiven. And it's not because of the particular thing that some person may have had in mind. It's because of what the Bible teaches. But as a wayward child of God, as we learned earlier, we've learned what's required of you if you're in that position. You've got to realize first the nature of that error and repent of it. Turn aside from it with intent to do it no more and make confession of it. And if you'll do that, we'll pray on your behalf and God will forgive you. We know that's so because the Bible teaches it. Today, if we could be of assistance, help in any way, even as a means of encouragement, we'd like you to know that. And the Lord is so excited to welcome you faithfully at His side if we today could be of assistance to you, if we could be of help to you, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>